Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, we speak to a scientist who made what he calls the climate clock. It's counting down the time in seconds until the world reaches 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. We need to shift the long-term trend downwards very considerably. And we talk to experts about climate anxiety, what it is, whether it differs around the world, and what to do about it. Eco-anxiety is an emotionally, mentally healthy response to what's going on in the world. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. It's honestly hard to really grasp the scale of the climate emergency and, by extension, what it's going to take to stop it. Part of the reason is that it can just be really confusing. In the coverage of the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, there's a lot of different numbers and terminology and jargon swirling around. Instead of keeping temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, to the climate is one of the key concerns. New initiative to cut methane levels, again signed by over 100 coal investments, to scale up clean power, to make a just transition. Given all this jargon and coverage and everything, it's really helpful when someone can just simplify the message. And that's exactly what Damon Matthews, a professor and research chair in climate science and sustainability at Concordia University in Canada, has done. For the past few years, Damon's been part of a team that translates the latest data about the climate crisis into something really tangible and honestly easy to understand. A countdown. So the idea of the climate clock was to try to visualize the climate challenge in a way that would kind of make sense to people. And what we decided to count down to was the Paris global climate targets that we've adopted under the Paris Agreement. And in particularly the more ambitious um, 1.5 degree global temperature target. And so when you load up and turn on the climate clock, you're going to see a series of numbers, one of which is a countdown until we reach that 1.5 degree global temperature target. The climate clock just got its latest update based on new data. So I asked Damon, how much time do we actually have left before the world hits the 1.5 degrees of global warming? We have a little more than 10 years until we get to one and a half degrees. So, you know, our understanding of the climate system is always improving. And as of the latest update, which was the IPCC report that came out in you know, a little bit earlier this year, the world has now warmed by a little bit more than 1.2 degrees. And so that number is ticking upwards. We also know how much carbon dioxide we've emitted, which is the primary driver of that temperature increase. And so that's, you know, the bottom number you'll see on the clock is the the total amount of CO2 that we've emitted over the last 150 years. And then the third piece of information that we that we use is the recent trend in global carbon dioxide emissions. So this the projection for 2021 has just been released. And, and so we've taken that most recent estimate of global CO2 emissions this current year, calculated the trend over the last five years, and used that as the kind of the pointer in terms of the direction that we are going, uh, globally speaking. And so those three pieces of information together tell us how much warming has occurred, how much emissions we've produced, you know, what the current trend in emissions is. And so the, the last piece of the puzzle is how much are we still allowed to emit if we want to limit global temperatures to one and a half degrees? That quantity is what we call the remaining carbon budget. 
Uh, just to give us some numbers here, kind of, what's our total budget, and how much of that budget have we spent in tons, if you will? We usually talk about the remaining carbon budget. That's what we haven't yet emitted. Um, and the latest IPCC report gave a number of 500 billion tons of carbon dioxide as the remaining budget for 2020 onwards. If you add on the carbon we've already emitted, we've emitted something like 2.4 trillion tons of carbon dioxide over the last 150 years. Um, so you put those things together and you get a total budget of something like 2,800 or 2,900 billion tons of, of carbon dioxide. But the, the most important piece of that is what hasn't been emitted yet. And then so if you think about starting in 2022, the remaining carbon budget would be 420 billion tons of CO2. Which is, again, it's about 10 and a half years of current emissions. And you guys just updated the clock. Um, can you tell me what that update means? Yeah, so every year we look at the most recent years of global CO2 emissions data and we update the trend. And so the the way we, the reason we chose this method was to try to capture the, you know, if you will, the current business as usual. When we think about business as usual as this, this kind of absence of climate action. But actually, you know, there has been some climate action over the last decade in particular, and that has led to a flattening of, of the, the curve in terms of global CO2 emissions. And so the current trend, you know, if we were to do nothing else and just kind of continue on with current policies and current level of effort, would be something like you know, either constant or very slightly increasing global CO2 emissions. And the, the idea of updating it every year is to be able to say, you know, are we making any progress? Is that trend changing? Have we added time to the clock over the last six, seven years? And to be able to kind of use this clock and this idea of time that people understand as a measuring stick to, to track progress towards ultimately avoiding one and a half degrees, which is the, the ideal scenario. In order to do that, we need to start actually decreasing emissions. And so COVID was a very interesting experiment for for global CO2 emissions, it led to an unprecedented one-year drop in global CO2 emissions, which unfortunately we are going to you know, bounce back from fairly dramatically. A new report claims global carbon dioxide levels will rise this year and that the rebound will be higher than pre-pandemic levels. But that, you know, that one-year drop did shift the trend downwards and added some time to the clock. And this most recent year's update has kind of brought that trend back up again and has taken that time away again from the clock. So, you know, we're sort of kind of at this point right now where global emissions are not increasing that quickly for CO2, but actually they need to decrease very, very quickly if we want to have any chance of staying below this target. And so there's still a gap and, and kind of the clock kind of illustrates that gap for people in a very tangible way. Uh, global emissions fell like around about five and a half percent. So if you can do this math or if this is even possible, how much, you know, time did that buy us before we reach the 1.5 C limit? I mean, one year by itself buys almost nothing. And that, that is one of the key messages here. In order to really add time to the clock, we need to shift the long-term trend or even the five-year trend, as far as the clock is concerned, downwards very considerably and very quickly. To give you a sense, you know, if we took that 5% decrease in emissions that occurred because of COVID and replicated that every year for 20 years, we would get to net zero emissions by 2040. And that would be a one and a half degree scenario. We would see warming peak probably close to one and a half degrees, potentially even below one and a half degrees. So, you know, 20 years of, you know, five percentage point decrease in global emissions each year would get us to one and a half degrees with a reasonable level of certainty. 
it would be nice to see this clock stop the one you've built uh, um what would you like to say to the listeners here i mean the way to stop the clock is to eliminate global co2 emissions before we get to one and a half degrees and at the current rate that's 10 years but if we start decreasing emissions we add time and so you know you can think of a something like a 20 year period to you know, decarbonize the world in order to avoid one and a half degrees and if we do that and temperatures stop increasing then then the clock stops and so everyone has to participate in this one of the real lessons i think from covid is that rapid ambitious action in response to a global threat can make a real difference and can avoid some of the worst consequences and and you know a lot of people have drawn analogies between covid and climate change they're not the same climate is a much less acute global threat but it's just as potent a global threat in terms of how it will affect global society and so you know we we need a similar level of government and citizen response in order to tackle this problem we haven't seen it yet i mean there's a lot of talk but we haven't really put in the amount of effort that we need to in order to solve this problem i think when we do we will actually solve it quite quickly but we need to get there and and actually make it a global priority in order for that to happen damon thank you so much for speaking with us today thank you Dan, I'm just looking at the clock now. It's actually embedded in a story that Damon wrote for us for the conversation. It's ticking down. 10 years, 5 months, 13 days, 21 hours, 15 minutes, 14, 13, 12, 11 seconds. It's, it's, it's really right there in front of me. It's scary. I feel the same way. When I was talking to Damon, and especially when you look at this clock or hearing you just read it out to me, my heart like sinks a little bit. And I honestly feel really anxious, especially thinking about what needs to be done in that 10 years. You're not alone, Dan. Climate anxiety is growing, particularly among young people. And more and more researchers are starting to study it too. I spoke to three of them for our next story to find out about the latest evidence on climate anxiety from around the world. The first person I called up was Caroline Hickman, a lecturer in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath in England, which is also doing a PhD in education. My research for the last 10 years has been talking with children and young people around the world about how they feel about the climate and biodiversity crisis. Caroline is also a psychotherapist, and she's involved in a group called the Climate Psychology Alliance, which works to bring a psychological understanding to debates around the climate crisis. This year, Caroline led a large global study into levels of climate anxiety among young people around the world. Before we got into that, I asked her to define what it is we're talking about here. Climate anxiety or eco-anxiety is initially an emotional response to the threat that we perceive as developing environmentally, ecologically in the world. But it goes much further than that. It also impacts on cognition. It impacts on the way we think about relationships and think about our futures. It also is a range of emotional responses. So anxiety is frequently the first, but it often then develops into a depression, a despair, distress, feelings of shame, guilt, grief. She says this emotional response is then compounded by frustration that nobody seems to be doing anything to fix the problem. Particularly strongly in young people, but not exclusively, it's then a feeling of despair and distress, betrayal and abandonment that people in power are failing to act, specifically governments and big business who've respectively got infinitely more power than the individual. 
So is it something you can diagnose? No, it's absolutely not diagnosable. And I really wouldn't want it to be. Because as soon as you start framing it as a mental illness, then you start thinking of it as a pathology and as something that needs to be fixed or cured. In fact, I would argue the opposite is true, that eco-anxiety or climate anxiety is an emotionally, mentally healthy response to what's going on in the world. We frequently measure mental health and we evaluate mental health by thinking about our capacity to respond to external reality. And external reality is looking increasingly bad. So, in fact, feeling anxious about this is a mentally healthy response. Caroline's research has involved her listening to 400 young people around the world talking about the climate emergency. Through this, she heard increasingly harrowing stories of distress. Children in the Maldives saying to me, we saw online people in Iceland at a funeral for a glacier. We're going to be underwater soon. Who's going to have a funeral for us? Or children in the Maldives telling me, you know, climate change is like Thanos in the Avengers Endgame whose ideology is to kill off half the life in the universe so the other half can thrive. But we're the half being killed off. So I was hearing these stories from children and young people around the world where they were facing this apocalypse, facing the extinction and the ending of their culture, their country, and feeling betrayed and abandoned globally. What they were telling me over and over again was it wasn't just the environmental distraction that was painful for them. It was the fact that people just didn't seem to care. At the beginning of 2021, Caroline was talking with Avaz, an organisation which campaigns on issues of global justice. They wanted to know what was missing from the evidence base around climate anxiety. And what we recognised that we didn't have large scale data, we didn't have numbers. So they supported us by funding a poll to be conducted with 10,000 children and young people aged 16 to 25 in 10 different countries, Australia, Brazil, Finland, France, India, Nigeria, Philippines, Portugal, the UK and the US. The poll was run through Cantor, an independent polling company. We asked a series of questions of these young people about how they felt about climate change but also how it was impacting on their thinking, what impact it had on their daily life, eating, sleeping, going to school. And then we asked them about their thoughts about the future, how it shaped their thinking about their own futures. And then we asked them whether there was any correlation with government action or inaction, both their own government and or other governments, on climate change. The results were analysed by a group of researchers from six different universities in the US, UK and Finland. A preprint of the study, published in the Lancet Planetary Health Journal, came out in September. It's been peer-reviewed and is now going through editing before final publication in December. What we found was the impact emotionally on children and young people was profound. For example, two-thirds globally telling us that they felt sad, afraid and anxious, and over half telling us that they felt angry, powerless, helpless, guilty and ashamed. In some parts of the world, the numbers were much higher. The global figure for sad, afraid is 67% of children and young people. But if we look just at the Philippines figures, that's 91%. And it's 74% with young people in India. One of the interesting things is the young people in the UK 
we had 64% feeling sad and afraid. Although they're not on the forefront of the climate crisis, physically, the young people in the UK still felt emotionally as impacted as the global average. The survey also picked up how eco-anxiety was affecting young people's daily lives. Globally, 45% reported a negative impact on daily functioning, eating, concentrating, going to work or going to school, sleeping, spending time in nature, playing, having fun, spending time with their family. Caroline told me that this tallies with what she's been hearing in her own clinical practice as a psychotherapist. I regularly am hearing teenagers and young adults saying to me, they're struggling to go to school. They're struggling to go to work. There's one young woman saying to me, she's getting up in the morning and she's frightened to open the curtains because she doesn't want to look at the weather. Because depending on what the weather is going to be showing her, she knows that her day is going to be overwhelmingly depressed or anxious. She's going to struggle to go out of the house and journey to go to work. Other teenagers have told her of their struggles to feel secure in the world, that they feel the world doesn't care about the environmental crisis. And the global survey found this too. Eight out of ten young people out of this 10,000 told us that people had failed to take care of the planet. Eight out of ten globally telling us that the future was frightening. For me, one of the biggest numbers was over half of young people telling us they felt humanity was doomed. Wow, that's really dramatic, isn't it? It's absolutely horrendous. It's not okay for me that that number of young people feel that humanity is doomed. The study is also revealing a real frustration at government's efforts to do something about the climate crisis. Young people told us they felt more betrayed than reassured by government responses, with two-thirds believing that governments were lying about the effectiveness of the actions that they were taking. Globally, over 60% of respondents said that governments couldn't be trusted to take action and that they were failing young people. So what we're seeing is this breakdown of trust in relationship to governments, governments being people in power and taking sufficient action and sufficient rapid action. Since the first results from the survey were released, Caroline has presented them to different groups around the world. She's been struck by the way people of different generations are responding. Over and over again, I'm noticing adults saying, oh no, this is awful, this is depressing, this is horrifying. And in mixed groups, we then open up the chat and say to the young people on the call, what do you think of this research? And then they start putting messages into the Zoom chat. And they start saying, I feel relieved. I feel better. This research gives me hope because this is how I feel, which is a powerfully contrasting response to the older people. And on the afternoon after we released this, emails started arriving in my inbox from teenagers all over the world. But I'm going to read you one of these responses. I'm only a single private person studying in Germany, but I feel the urge to thank you and your colleagues so much for the research. What the study reveals makes me, for the first time ever, feel that I am not alone with the future and the climate anxiety that I experience every day. I still don't know what to do with these feelings to cope better with it, 
but I consider the recent study of the University of Bath as an increasingly important step for us young people around the world to imaginary, emotionally connect, and even visually realise that no one of us is alone with this huge issue. Rather than upsetting young people, the research made them feel better. Because they felt listened to, they felt validated, they felt heard. Caroline's study is helping provide some much-needed real data on the scale of eco-anxiety in different parts of the world. Meanwhile, other researchers are working on new ways to track how it affects people. My name is Tegan Hogg and I am a clinical PhD student at the University of Canberra and currently I'm completing my PhD research on understanding people's eco-anxiety. Tegan's always been drawn to environmental issues and she's also interested in the way people respond to big global social questions. But I think it wasn't really until the 2019-2020 bushfire season in Australia. Thousands fleeing as more than 200 fires rage in two of Australia's most populated states, killing at least 18. Where I felt like uh, this idea of anxiety around environmental problems really, really resonated with me. And I personally felt a huge amount of anxiety and concern and stress, but potentially not so much as people Uh, who had actually gone through, directly experienced the bushfires, I felt like if I was feeling that way, there must be so many other people around the world um, feeling that way as well. Tegan just published the results of new research on the way that eco-anxiety manifests itself. Along with a couple of colleagues, she conducted two separate studies of university students, one of just over 300 participants in Australia and a second of just over 700 participants in New Zealand. And what we were able to show was that, you know, eco-anxiety was fairly common. So, for example, in our Australian study, over two thirds of, of our sample said that they experienced eco-anxiety at least some of the time. And that was fairly consistent with our New Zealand sample as well. In their analysis, they broke down people's experiences of eco-anxiety into four main features. The first feature was what we called it affective symptoms, which essentially just capture people's feelings of anxiety and worry. And also this element of their worry being a little bit outside of controllable. The second underlying feature was rumination which captured people's persistent thoughts about um, environmental degradation or environmental calamities, things like that. Um, But it was that persistent thinking, that repetitive thinking around different issues. The third feature was physical symptoms, which captured people's behavioural impairments. So, for example, difficulty sleeping, um, difficulty socialising with friends and family um, and like impacting their ability to work and study. The final one was anxiety about people's personal impact on the planet. So what we were finding in in people's responses was that they were showing anxiety about not only a range of different environmental issues, but they were also really anxious and worried about, well, how are they as an individual personally contributing to the problem? And also it kind of tapped into this feeling of powerlessness and kind of helplessness around, well, are my personal behaviours, pro-environmental behaviours, things like that, are they actually having a significant impact on resolving the climate crisis as well? 
Tegan's research also found that eco-anxiety was a set of distinct feelings, separate to other types of anxiety. What we were able to show was that eco-anxiety and the four underlying dimensions of eco-anxiety were distinct from um, symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety and symptoms of stress, which is really important because research hasn't really been able to disentangle that um, previously. It's also really important because a lot of the kind of narrative around climate anxiety and eco-anxiety has been, well, is it really a unique experience or is it the same thing as anxiety? And also I think that's fed into this narrative around like eco-anxiety is a mental health problem and it, it shouldn't be looked at that way. Tegan's insistence that climate anxiety should not be treated as a mental health problem is common among researchers in this field. As we heard from Caroline earlier, there are real sensitivities around the way climate anxiety is framed. There's a lot of care around talking about mental health in the context of climate anxiety because of this idea that people might think, well, let's let's find a way to resolve the mental health issue, which is only a symptom of the actual real problem, which is climate change. This is Charles Ogunbode. He's an assistant professor of applied psychology at the University of Nottingham in England, where he researches environmental psychology. He's also a member of the Climate Psychology Alliance. Charles is interested in the way climate anxiety might differ in different parts of the world, particularly non-Western countries. And he's recently published a couple of research papers with new data on this. The framework within which we're working with the research is not to say, oh, this is a mental health problem. We need to address the mental health problem. No. What we're trying to say is that climate change as an issue isn't just about this environmental impact. It's not just about the economic impact, but there is a psychological impact as well that comes along with it, which is this mental health uh, manifestation. But the solution is not to treat it like a mental health issue, is to address the environmental stressor that's given rise to this mental health problem. Charles's interest in climate anxiety peaked a few years ago because of something that happened to his wife. In April 2018, my wife and I had our first child. And for, for several months after the birth, uh, my wife had a very intense experience of climate anxiety. So she would spend really extended periods of time not really sleeping, kind of just obsessively following sort of climate change news and information and things on social media and stuff like that. It was quite a, uh, a difficult time. It was difficult to pinpoint why this happened when it did. Not only had they just had a baby, they'd also just moved countries to Norway, which may have played a role. So basically, our experience generally kind of was like oscillating between really intense bouts of sort of, uh, I guess, emotional distress about what was unfolding, basically, with climate change on one hand. And then on the other hand, you would have really sort of manic motivation to just do something. One of the ways she used to cope with it was um, after work in the evenings, we would walk around the area we lived in um, with our newborn in tow and we often it would be at night, it would be wet and cold and we would pick up litter in the area that we lived okay. and it gave the sense that you know we're kind of doing something and uh, we went to some demonstrations, we you know changed our diet, we really sort of cut out meat from our food and things like that. And I, I think it, since that period, uh, certainly my wife, is, she's, she's no less engaged with the issue, but I think we've managed to kind of get to that sort of medium where it's not quite as intense as it, as it was. When Charles began looking into previous research into climate anxiety, he found much of the evidence was limited to North America, Europe and Australia. The evidence from those studies 
often gets discussed and interpreted in a universal kind of way. But I think there is too little attention to the fact that the concepts like eco-anxiety and climate change anxiety kind of developed within a very particular um, set of cultural and um, social parameters. Um, and we haven't done enough to actually ask people in other parts of the world um, how they're feeling about climate change and also to look at you know how these emotions the degree to which they translate into things like psychological distress or negative impacts on well-being because those are not the only outcomes that can arise from um, climate change anxiety and we also know that you know cultural context cultural resources the frameworks of engaging with the world can have a big impact on how different psychological phenomena play out. Mental health means different things to different people, depending on their cultural background. Working with a couple of his colleagues in Norway, Charles initiated a research project looking at how negative emotions related to climate change related to insomnia and mental health. News of the project spread by word of mouth and the team were joined by researchers from around the world. It became quite a large consortium and we ended up gathering data from about 28 countries in the end. The first results from the study were published earlier this year. Basically, what the, the research showed was there was a modest but quite consistent um, link between high levels of concern about climate change, so using concern very broadly to include you know, high levels of worry, anxiety, uh, fear, you know, negative emotions about climate change in general, was linked with um, increased rates of insomnia symptoms as well as poor self-rated mental health. The project has led to some follow-up studies, including one focused on climate anxiety in the Philippines among Generation Z, that's people aged between 18 and 26. The results mirrored the data from the global study. They found a relationship between climate anxiety and poor mental health. But the Filipino study used a slightly more sophisticated way of measuring mental health that provided some more in-depth insights. What we found among that sample, which is quite interesting, was the relationship of climate anxiety and mental health overall seemed to be mainly linked to the emotion aspect, but it didn't seem to be translating that much into the sort of impaired psychological functioning. So it's possible that people in that context, you know, people are aware of what's going on with climate change, but it's also possible that people have ways of coping with those negative emotions in such a way that it doesn't really impact their so psychological function, they're not losing sleep over it, they're not, you know, having that the sort of impaired social relationships and things like that as people would um, in other contexts. The Philippines has just been labelled as the country the most at risk from climate change. It's already suffering from sea level rise, extreme weather such as typhoons and ocean acidification. Charles says the results of the study here could offer some lessons to other parts of the world. We can also kind of learn from them about how to sort of build resilience. Um, because if you live in an area that is very vulnerable to climate change, the projections for the future don't look that good. But people are still, you know, carrying on with life and they have hopes and aspirations and, you know, positive expectations for the future. Then I think there are important lessons to learn there and to draw on in sort of supporting young people here as well. Charles and his team are still analysing more of the data from their research, and one of the questions they're currently exploring is around action. A lot of the recommendations for dealing with climate anxiety usually involve in some way or some framing or the other about sort of channeling your anxiety into action. It's always, you know, get out there and protest or, you know, take some action and that'll help you overcome it and feel better. 
they want to see whether action really makes a difference. And so far, the initial results suggest that it actually depends on where you live. Climate anxiety pretty much impacts everyone's mental health and well-being who's experiencing climate anxiety to some degree. Whereas climate anxiety doesn't always turn into action because not everybody has an opportunity to act on their anxiety. In fact, it's only in a minority of countries um, where climate change anxiety seems to lead to action. Um, And looking at the distribution of the kinds of countries, it's very heavily clustered towards Europe and North America, um, especially when you consider actions like protesting about climate change. It seems quite obvious to me that a lot of that also has to do with things like being in a democratic system. The option to protest is not there for a lot of people in other parts of the world. Um, Or alternatively, you could also think maybe people don't necessarily consider protesting a viable response. Um, You know, there's a tendency to kind of talk about government inaction on climate change in a very broad sense, but not every government across the world has a similar level of agency, a similar level of capacity to actually have an impact on the issue. So we have to be careful in saying, oh, you just get out there and protest and you're going to be okay. Let's bring it back to the young people here. How do psychotherapists and psychologists go about helping people who come to them suffering genuine distress from eco-anxiety? When I asked Caroline Hickman this, she told me that over the past decade, there's been a movement to create models of a climate-aware psychology that include awareness of political and global injustice. A lot of the young people who come for therapy with me don't want to talk about their personal distress. They want to talk about the political injustice and the global injustice. They don't want to talk about how they feel. They want to talk about how they can save the world. And I have to encourage them to talk about you can save yourself and save the world it's both political and it's personal it's global and it's individual so we have to find a way to move between these so we keep both in view but caroline says there is a difference between people with mild feelings and those with more severe examples of eco-anxiety and distress in which case there's a breakdown of trust in others and that breakdown in trust i think is really important and is perhaps where you do need somebody with more professional training to help you because that's where young people are older adults are also often feeling suicidal as a result of that breakdown in trust she tells young people the reason they're feeling anxiety distress or despair is because they care you care about the planet you care about young people you care about yourself you care about the global south you care about this injustice why would we want to remove that care actually you should feel proud of the fact you care I don't want to get rid of these feelings, but not have them be so overwhelming and cruel and unbearable that you're unable to live your life and find joy and beauty and meaning in the world. As I ended my conversation with Caroline, she wanted to add one last point about hope. This is not naive hope of, oh, it'll be all right, but radical hope. And the radical hope message says, we're going to stand in the fire, we're going to stand in the discomfort of this, and we're going to find ways to navigate this with courage, collectively. But radical hope says it is bad and doesn't deny 
the awfulness and the urgency of this. If we can come from that place, then actually that radical hope gives us a way of tolerating the distress and the pain of this and taking action. And somehow it makes it okay. Radical hope. I like that as an idea. Somehow being able to turn one's anxiety into action. Yeah, me too. And I reckon we all need a bit more of that in our lives. You can read more about eco-anxiety, including an article by Tegan Hogg, on The Conversation. We'll put some links in the show notes. And make sure not to miss The Conversation Weekly next week. We'll have a special episode featuring academics around the world reflecting on the outcomes of the COP26 climate summit. To end this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Fabrice Rousselot, editor at The Conversation in France. My name is Fabrice Rousselot. I'm the editor for The Conversation based in France. The first story I've chosen today comes from Emilien Warvial from Sciences Po. It's about Eric Zemmour and the problems he's causing the French right. Eric Zemmour is a very controversial figure from the extreme right. He's a former journalist and polemist who is running for the French presidential elections in April 2022, even though he's not an official candidate yet. He's seen as racist, homophobic and sexist, and runs on an anti-immigration platform with a proposal, for example, that all French people with an immigration background give their children only French first names like Paul or Pierre. It shouldn't be a problem for the French right-wing parties in France, but it appears that some of his ideas attract traditional French voters who say for 25% of them that they could vote for Zemmour. The challenge then would be for the French right to strengthen its position on immigration to the risk of alienating voters from the centre. The second story comes from Emmanuel Hirsch from Paris-Saclay and talks about the ethical issues behind vaccination for children. The article weights the American decision to allow vaccination for children from 5 to 11, but it argues that the situation in France is different, with less children prone to obesity and less children affected by the virus. The author is asking for a national dialogue on the issue in France and also for a conversation between parents and children so the children understand better the vaccination process. Thank you very much. Fabrice Rousselot there in Paris. That's it for this week. Thanks to all of the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thank you to the conversation editors, Hannah Hogue, Anthea Badzakis, Jack Marley and Stephen Kahn and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. Find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free newsletter by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks, as always, for listening, everyone.